he's a tiny little man. He's like five foot three or something like that. He's just minuscule. And he was clearly brutalized in the tough streets of St. Petersburg growing up. I'm sure he was beaten up every day and humiliated in the most horrible ways. And so he's been sort of groomed into becoming a psychopath. You know, he's the kind of guy who was probably, you know, killing animals for entertainment when he was a child. And as time has gone on, he then joined the KGB and they're in the business of like psychopathology. They're in the business of torturing people and bribing people and blackmailing them and doing everything to try to get everybody to do what they want. And none of it is for good purpose. It's all for ill intent. So he's a psychopath as a, I mean, I think he's sort of bonafide. If we were to get the physician's desk reference and look at his characteristics and compare it to that definition of a psychopath, that's what you have. He's a psychopath. Hi guys, and welcome to another load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. Following last week's conversation with titan of industry Sir Martin Sorrell, this time I'm talking to another titan, the inspiring Bill Browder. Now, if all Bill had achieved was hedge fund success, he would be regarded as the most significant foreign private investor in Russia as standout. But it's Bill's work as a human rights activist over the last decade and more that marks him out as a man of great courage, bravery and conviction. For he has fought Russian corruption and by proxy Vladimir Putin in the name of his lawyer Sergei Magnitsky, who was brutally tortured and murdered for standing up against the regime. Now the International Magnitsky Act stands in Sergei's name. As topical as it gets, Bill and I talk about Putin the psychologist and psychopath, the twisted Trump-Putin bromance, how we behave under duress, and Bill's own behaviour patterns and coping strategies under constant threat of Russian arrest. Get ready for a real-life thriller. Bill, welcome to a load of BS. It's timely you're here, and I'm delighted to chat with you today. Great to be here with you. Great pleasure. Thanks. Now, Bill, your professional and family life is inextricably linked with Russia, and your commentary on the country, its leadership, its crimes and human rights abuses are more sought after than ever now, with war in Ukraine coinciding with the publication of your second book, Freezing Order, the sequel to Red Notice, both gripping thrillers which open up the world's eyes to the scale of corruption and murder at the bloody hands of Vladimir Putin, whose behaviour has set up now your life mission to bring the villains to justice in the name and memory of your Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who was brutally murdered, of course, fighting the regime on your behalf. Now, these stories will weave their way into our conversation, but we're going to center it on understanding Russian and by proxy Putin's behavior, mindset, motivations, and possible endgame, and understanding how your life has been affected for better and worse. So we'll discuss what makes a psychopath tick, how and why did we collectively let a brutal dictator run amok for years with impunity on what on earth happens next. But in introduction to you, Bill, you of course come from a family of communists and academics, but you trod a rather different path. You attended Stanford Business School, and a few years later, you were in Moscow managing a billion dollars invested in newly capitalist Russia. So are you a natural contrarian, or or what happened to you? So my grandfather was the leader of the Communist Party of America from 1932 to 1945. And then my father was a brilliant mathematician. He skipped high school, went to MIT at the age of 14, and then went to Princeton for his PhD in math at the age of 17, had his PhD by the time he was 21. My brother also skipped high school, went to the University of Chicago, got a degree in physics by the time he was 17. And so I was the stupid one in the family, and I was just a regular 
kid. And on top of that, I was looking for some way of rebelling. And so my rebellion was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. My father was a very left-leaning academic and, of course, my grandfather, the communist. And it really had a dramatic effect on my family. They were all pretty angry. They couldn't imagine that, that such a thing could happen in their family. So that was my rebellion. I didn't get involved in Russia because I thought there was be good business out there. I got involved in Russia because my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and I want to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. But it was more of a family rebellion than an inspirational move by any measure. Right. And actually, before diving into more Russian questions specifically, I think a more macro question beyond Putin. Do you worry now about the growth of populist leaders around the world? Because of course, we've got Orban in Hungary, we've Bolsonaro in Brazil, Xi in China, Johnson in the UK, Lukashenko, Modi, then you have Trump and Le Pen in the wings in US and France. And despite this European and American unity against Russia now, the strength of the West and NATO feels suddenly undermined as we stand back and reflect. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really a problem. In a certain way, Putin is playing for time because, you know, he unleashes five million refugees on the Western world. And the refugees, of course, always have the effect of polarizing countries. And we've seen that with the Syrian refugees. Oil prices are up above $100. Gas prices are up. Food prices are going through the roof. And so all Putin has to do right now is wait it out until one of our countries becomes, you know, fully hardcore, populist, fascist, whatever, and then breaks the alliance. And you're right. And actually, this goes back to the global financial crisis. The global financial crisis, you know, set off a situation where a lot of people who had been living comfortable middle class lives were then pushed into poverty. And those people were, were angry at their leaders and that those people then elected Erdogan and Bolsonaro and all these types of characters. And whatever the global financial crisis did, I think that was like just a small appetizer to what this both COVID and now this war in Ukraine are going to do to populations, politics and populist leaders going forward. Uh, it seems to me each emboldens the other, which is very worrying. I mean, if one looks at the actually as a digression, the election result in France now, despite that there was relief that Macron was, was re-elected, the proportion of the popular vote that Le Pen still received <laughs> surely is a very worrying data point for the future of Europe. Yeah, well, it's, it's terrifying. And the thing about it is that she's a really unattractive character. She's been around forever. But you could have some new person showing up in some country who's hasn't been around forever, who's much more uh, attractive with all the same nonsense, the populists' nonsense. And, and that could end up, you know, creating a fascist regime in Europe or America or, or wherever. Absolutely. I mean, at least her father was more of an obvious cartoon villain, which she's been at least clever enough, I suppose, to rebrand herself. But Let's take a step back. I want to talk about the Magnitsky Act now, because it's at the heartbeat, or it is the heartbeat of both your books. Just to set some more context before we dive into other issues, explain to us briefly what the Act is and how it came about. So this Magnitsky Act is named after Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer in Russia. Sergei discovered a massive $230 million tax rebate fraud that had been committed by Russian government officials by effectively stealing the taxes that I paid to the Russian government. Sergei was a young patriot. He had testified against the officials involved. In retaliation, those same officials arrested him, put him in pretrial detention, where he was then tortured for 358 days until he was murdered at the age of 37 on November 16th, 2009. And I've made it my life's mission since he was murdered to go out and get justice for him. Justice turned out to be impossible to get in Russia because they circled the wagons. Vladimir Putin personally got involved in exonerating all of the people who killed Sergei. They gave promotions and state honors to the people who were most complicit. And so I said, well, if we can't get justice inside of Russia, let's get justice outside of Russia. How do we do that? 
And the answer was that the people who killed Sergei killed him for 230 million, and they don't keep that money in Russia, they keep that money in the West. And so there was this idea that I came up with, it's just to freeze their assets and ban their visas in the West. And I took this idea to Washington, and in December of 2012, the both houses of Congress passed the Magnitsky Act. It became a federal law on December 14, 2012, and it's since now spread around the world. There are now 34 countries with Magnitsky Acts. We've sanctioned the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky, but it's now been used as the template to go after all sorts of other bad guys, not just in Russia, but everywhere. And most importantly, it's a template for how oligarchs are being sanctioned all over the world. And so we're not just engaging with full-on trade sanctions, but we're going specifically after these individuals who have these enormous amounts of money. And we kind of found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime when we did the Magnitsky Act. He hated it when it was passed. He made it his single largest foreign policy priority to try to repeal it. He banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families in retaliation. He sent his emissary, a Russian female lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya, to Trump Tower on June 9th, 2016, just before Trump was elected, to meet with Donald Trump Jr. to try to get him to convince his father to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And so this has been a real thorn in the side of Putin since the whole thing happened. I think he doesn't like it for several reasons. One, he doesn't like it because he's got a ton of money. He's got $200 billion or north of that in money offshore, and that money can be frozen. And he also doesn't like it because it's just the most enormous sign of disrespect. Everybody was tiptoeing around him, kissing his ass, trying to make him feel good about himself. And all of a sudden, I come along and I convince all these lawmakers in different countries to call this the Magnitsky Act which reminds everybody every time it's used of what Putin did to Sergei Magnitsky. And he just hates being disrespected. He's like a prison yard type of guy. And like, you can't look at anyone askance in the prison yard because it's disrespectful and they will kill each other over that. And Putin feels the same way about the Magnitsky Act. And so it's been just constant in his life trying to get rid of it and using all the resources of the state to go after me, to try to punish me, to try to kill me, to try to arrest me, to try to sue me because he hates it. And the more he does that, the more I realize that we have found the tool. We've stumbled onto something truly monumental. The more upset Putin is, the more I know that what I've done has been meaningful. The ultimate backhanded compliment, perhaps. But when Sergei was arrested, as you say, he was tortured and bullied into making this false confession about stealing the $230 million under your instruction and to retract his testimony. And that's the point. Of course, he didn't do this. And the question we inevitably ask ourselves, or at least I do, is what would we have done in similar circumstances? And you know, you've been manhandled by Russian police before, and you have a sense of that environment. I mean, what do you think you would have done in Sergei's position? What did you encourage him to do? You know, what I would have done is impossible to know. I mean, I, I can't even imagine the duress that he was under, but what I wanted him to do was break, just, just to, like, to say whatever he needed to say to save his life. It wouldn't have made that much of a difference to me. I was safe in London. He could have saved himself, and I wanted him to save himself. You just never know who's going to do what, and you only know when someone is in duress. And Sergei, when he was in duress, his principles kicked in in the most profound way, and he refused to perjure himself. He refused to bear false witness, because for him, the idea of doing that was worse than, than the physical pain that they were subjecting him to. And we see other examples. I mean, Zelensky, he was a comedian. I didn't have a very high regard for him when he was first elected president. I thought he's a joker. He was like a, not a serious guy. But all of a sudden, he's put under duress, and he becomes the most brave, principled, you know, hero of all time. And so you never know who the heroes are until they're, you know, Sergei Magnitsky was a tax lawyer. You know, you just don't know who the heroes are going to be until there's a testing moment. For Sergei, the testing moment was, you know, do you want to perjure yourself and compromise your integrity? And for him, that was not what he wanted to do. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think one never really knows the depth of our resilience or, or the breadth of our own coping strategies until one's under the cosh. It's a very difficult question to answer. But I mean, from all your experience, what does it take to go against the flow of corruption and, and stand up to the system in Russia? How hard is it really to do that? It's almost impossible. Alexei Navalny stood up to corruption and exposed it. And he was, they put Novichok in his underwear, tried to kill him. And then when he survived, they arrested him and threw him in jail for 10 years. Vladimir Karamurza, who's a big character in my book, who helped me pass the Magnitsky Act, another opposition figure, they uh, poisoned him within an inch of his life. He was poisoned twice. Was it, multiple all, times, yeah. He was now in jail in Moscow because they arrested him. Boris Nemtsov wrote books about how rich Putin was, and they shot him in front of the Kremlin. And then, of course, me. You know, I, I was the largest foreign investor in the country. I was publicly complaining about corruption. I was running a strategy of naming and shaming, and they have targeted me since 2005. Basically, it's not a country where there's any place for that, and anyone who does comes a cropper. As you look back on the last decade of the act and the successes that you've had, the progress that you've made so far, it's obvious that at the core of the act, it is a very human story. And intuitively, we get that stories give meaning and structure to good communication, basically. And I mean, how powerful have personal emotive stories been in your ability to make progress with the Magnitsky Act? I think it's been absolutely the only reason I've made progress, the Magnitsky Act. My first testimony in front of Congress, I was at a table with the heads of five major human rights groups. And it was the first time I'd ever testified in front of Congress. This was in 2010. And nobody told me how you're supposed to do it. So the first person goes and they're from I don't know, Human Rights Watch. And they go up there and they read from a piece of paper and they say, you know, there were 6,000 people killed here and 5,000 extrajudicial tortures and this, that, and the other thing and blah, 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 blah. And then they stop reading from the piece of paper, put their paper down and finish their testimony. And then the next one gets up and says the same thing. And I was feeling really bad about myself because I hadn't like prepared all these statistics and I didn't have a piece of paper. And I stood up and I told Sergei's story and I told them who he was and how he discovered this crime and how they tortured him and what they did to him and how he stood up to them and he didn't buckle. And I went on and on and on. And at the end of my testimony, the chairman of the committee, a congressman named Jim McGovern, said, you know, we hear so many statistics here, but when you bring the story down to one individual, that changes everything. And he said, we make laws in Congress. We should do something about this. And it was his idea to do the Magnitsky Act, to make it into law. And it was only because of that story. And since then, I've been telling Sergei's story to every lawmaking body, every law enforcement agency, everybody who wants to listen. And the story breaks through all the cynicism, all the real politic, all the laziness, and it breaks through. And that's why there are 34 countries that have Magnitsky Acts, because of Sergei's story, because of who he was, what he is, what he, what he stands for, and how he's a symbol of all the things that have gone wrong in Russia. Yeah, there, there really could be no more powerful, more impressive legacy. It's really been a fantastic journey, which I've enjoyed following through reading your books and other pieces. Let's talk a little about Putin. Um, it seems to me that he's a very skilled psychologist. When he comes to power, initially, he clamps down, of course, on all the oligarch successes. And you see yourselves as aligned in your goals to clean up the system from all the asset stripping that's going on. But Putin's playing a game which you don't spot at this point. What's his big game plan? Originally, he came in after Yeltsin. Yeltsin was the previous president who had all sorts of good credentials as a Democrat and a free speech guy, but he allowed 22 oligarchs to steal 40% of the country from the people. And the average Russian was dying. Life expectancy for a male was like 58 years. I mean, it was just everything about life was just terrible because of intense poverty, the state didn't function. And the oligarchs were, you know, flying around on Boeing business jets and sailing around in 500 foot yachts. 
And so Putin came in and his big pitch to the Russian people was, we're going to get rid of all these oligarchs. We're going to stop this. This is ridiculous. This shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen in any country. It shouldn't happen in Russia. So he comes in there with this pledge to get rid of all this stuff. And he arrests the first guy, the richest guy, Michael Hordakovsky, the owner of Yukos. And everybody is cheering and saying, great. I was cheering along with them. Great. I wanted these oligarchs out of the way. But then the second oligarch, Roman Abramovich doesn't get arrested. They don't seize his oil company. They give him $13 billion for his oil company. And then they make him the governor of the Chukotka region of Siberia. And I'm sitting there saying, wait a second, how is that like one oligarch you destroy and then the other oligarch you make into the richest guy in the world and make him a government official? And it became obvious to me that Putin's objective wasn't to get rid of the oligarchs. He just wanted to become the biggest oligarch himself. And he has successfully done that. He is now the richest man in the world, the biggest oligarch in Russia, and that his goal was never to clean up Russia. His goal was just to become insanely rich. Yeah, he wanted a cut of every big transaction in the country. I can't think of it. Has there ever been a bigger mafia boss than he in history in terms of the scale of his behavior and in its aggression? I don't know, maybe Genghis Khan or something. I mean, but the way that Putin has done it is pretty remarkable. And I think he's pretty proud of himself. You know, he came from nothing. He really was just really nobody. He becomes the richest guy in the world. The problem is that it's a poisoned chalice. Once you've stolen that much money from the people and from everybody and shaken everybody down and killed people and taken them hostage, they're going to come after you the moment you trip up and fail. And so he's been looking over his shoulder for the last 22 years, and he continues to look over his shoulder, and he's scared to death of everybody and everything. And there's no peaceful moment in his life. He can't just pat himself on the back and say, look how rich I am. What a great situation I'm in. Thank you very much. Yeah, hence go to war, possibly. Yeah, <laughs> the, exactly. the ultimate uh, distraction strategy, which we'll come to, but just keeping an eye on his motivations. You talk about money, obviously, but what else motivates him? And is it power? Has he got sort of humiliation and revenge complexes? What's driving him? All of the above. So first of all, we should understand this. He's a tiny little man. He's like five foot three or something like that. He's just minuscule. And he was clearly brutalized in the tough streets of St. Petersburg growing up. I'm sure he was beaten up every day and humiliated in the most horrible ways. And so he's been sort of groomed into becoming a psychopath. You know, he's the kind of guy who was probably, you know, killing animals for entertainment when he was a child. And as time has gone on, he then joined the KGB and they're in the business of like psychopathology. They're in the business of torturing people and bribing people and blackmailing them and doing everything to try to get everybody to do what they want. And none of it is for good purpose. It's all for ill intent. So he's a psychopath as a, I mean, I think he's sort of bona fide. If we were to get the physician's desk reference and look at his characteristics and compare it to that definition of a psychopath, that's what you have. He's a psychopath. Now, it doesn't mean he's insane. I mean, he's insane in the sense that he'll kill somebody and his heart won't start beating faster. But he's not insane in the sense of everything is very calculated because his objectives are very simple. It starts with money. In Russia, you don't go to government to serve your country. You go to government to steal as much money as you can possibly steal. And the higher you are in government, the more money, uh, right up to the president who gets the most money. But he needs power to steal money. And you can't be in power without having all the money. You can't be the leader and not be the richest guy. And so it all kind of ricochets off of each other. But it's an unsustainable strategy. You can't steal everything from everybody and have them tolerate it forever. And so he has now found himself in this terrible position where he needs to stay in power. And by the way, if ever he was to be out of power, that would be the end of everything. Game over. But yeah. do you think his behavior, and indeed that of those who are complicit with it, is it particular to a Russian psyche in terms of how he so adeptly, so brazenly pulls off these crimes of such sophistication? Or is he simply displaying generic textbook malevolent dictator traits? 
Yeah, I mean, you could go to every African country. They just have less resources, and he's doing the same thing. just hollowing out the country. There's a famous dictator, Mobuto Seke from Zaire. It's now called Central African Republic. And he stole, every, you know, the average person lived on less than a dollar a day. He stole all the money and had the yachts and villas in the south of France. So different with Vladimir Putin. What I, what I have been told, though, by people who have familiarity with Africa, is that the amount of stealing is really just even greater in Russia. I mean, they've never seen something like that. The breadth of people on $15,000 or $20,000 salaries on their Saint-Tropez yachts is uh, quite extraordinary. I mean, how has Putin changed in the 25 plus years he's been in your orbit? Do you think he started off with a very clear plan at the beginning? Because there's a theory that a lot of people who commit fraud don't set out to on day one, but events snowball uncontrollably. And before you know it, as you indicate, you reach a point of no return where you can only go one way. No, the only thing that this change is brazenness. There's the expression power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Putin, he's always been a crook well before he was president. He's always been a bad man and a killer. The only thing that's happened is that he's gotten more confident in doing it. He's sort of learned the ropes, figured out what works and what doesn't, and just gotten more and more brazen. I mean, it's interesting because you know, when he first came to power, he was scared. He didn't have all that much power. He was kind of scared of the people. And for the first couple of years, he behaved like a sort of bland technocrat. And then he started, you know, figuring out what, what he could get away with, and he started getting away with it. And what Putin is famous for is his thin skin. He just can't stand any type of criticism. He's just like goes off the deep end. And anytime anyone criticizes him, he's just such a sensitive little man that he can't stand it. And so he goes really crazy whenever that happens. Well, like his old friend, the former president of the United States, similar traits. Well, I mean, Putin is in a certain way, I mean, you know, Trump blows up and then like he forgets, you know, he forgets who he's mad at, but Putin will never forget. He's like an elephant. He'll remember for the rest of his life if somebody slighted him. Yeah, that's the bureaucratic Russian gene, which Trump certainly does not have, far more organized. So presumably, would you say that Putin is exhibiting classic final phase dictator behavior? You're surrounded increasingly only by yes men who are too scared to challenge. He's increasingly erratic, unpredictable, and therefore he's this caged animal now. Yeah, I think we're that's wishful thinking that we're in the final phases. You know, look at North Korea. Kim Jong-un's been around for a while, and he'll probably be around for a lot longer. He's running a pariah state where the economy is in destitute situation. I think the most likely scenario is that Putin is able to carry on and carry on and carry on and cause trouble for Ukraine into perpetuity and trouble for us. To a certain extent, if he doesn't start a nuclear war and he doesn't win in Ukraine, you know, eventually the prices will settle down. We will stop buying Russian oil or we'll stop buying oil altogether. Maybe start, you know, using, you know, renewables. His blackmail tools that he's got for the West are limited. You know, after a certain number of Ukrainians have become refugees, there's no more Ukrainians to become refugees. After, you know, the wheat doesn't get exported and the prices go up, then we replace wheat with soybeans or whatever. And then eventually the equilibrium comes back into the world and then he doesn't have his leverage. But he's going to play everything for all it's worth until he's done playing it. Yeah, that is the interesting question. Despite that he's miscalculated in the war, you know, can he escalate his way to success? Success, however, that may be defined. That is his absolute modus operandi is failing at things and then escalating, even if it's terribly self-destructive for him. He wanted to punish Poland and Bulgaria. He stopped selling them gas. We've been talking about stop paying for the gas. So that works for us. While we may take some satisfaction that the war in Ukraine has been, in inverted commas, disastrous for Putin so far, bigger picture, and knowing Putin's motives as we do, as we've discussed, I wonder would it have served the world better if he could have claimed what we might call a quick and modest victory and so felt secure enough then to step back 
bask in some glory and then so put a stop to escalation and further bloodshed. I mean, Ukrainians may not support this view, but I mean, can we make that argument under any circumstances? We can't make that argument because he would have never stopped with a small portion of Ukraine. And frankly, if he had even gotten the whole of Ukraine, he wouldn't have stopped there. You know, the reason he's doing this is to have a war so he can tell his people, we have a foreign enemy. Don't be mad at me. Be mad at these um, terrible Ukrainians or the terrible Americans or the terrible Europeans. But that's like saying, let's give Hitler a Sudetenland and peace in our time. There's no appeasing Putin. He needs this war to stay in power. And so the war will continue in whatever form he needs to continue it in. And it's very important to recognize that he might have been a total disaster militarily with the Ukrainians and lost. He might have had a total disaster in terms of the sanctions, which he didn't anticipate. But it's been a total success launching this war from a domestic support perspective. He's no longer at risk of being overthrown. He's got 83% genuine, fervent support by the Russian people. That was the main reason he did this. That's genuine? That's genuine. Absolutely. You can find Russians in London that are supporting him. They know everything. They watch all the different news, hear all the stuff. They still support it. It's almost like a tribal thing. You know, once your tribe gets attacked, you side with your tribe. He's not being attacked. He's attacking. But, you know, once you're in a conflict, you root for your team. doesn't matter what reasons are. Yeah. I mean, the elephant in the room is historical Western reaction to Putin's atrocities. You know, you look back, invasion of Georgia 2008, annexation of Crimea 2014, then there was the intervention in Syria a year later. We did nothing but embolden him. I mean, why did Western powers ignore Putin's corruption and crimes? I mean, pure self-interest or they didn't see what was unfolding? I think it's a combination of appeasement. Nobody really wanted to be the one to have a trouble with Putin. He was so vicious and thin-skinned combination of appeasement. Then you also had all sorts of people at the feeding at the trough. All these members of the establishment were getting money from Russia and then doing their bidding to try to like tamp down any reaction to these things. And then there's absolute corruption in different places where like the Hungarian prime minister was on the payroll. You know, the stuff going on in Cyprus is even worse. So you combine all that stuff up, weak leadership. The Cold War was over. Everyone has gotten flabby. Everyone just didn't want any trouble. You know, Obama wanted to focus on domestic policy, so he created a reset button and, you know, Blair and Cameron and all these prime ministers were just like not wanting to like, you know, have trouble. Business was good. And so we ended up in this situation where, you know, I'd go around trying to get countries to be tough on Russia, do sanctions. And it's like I was walking in with a large turd on my head. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And it was remarkable. You know, I go to the German foreign ministry or the Swedish foreign ministry, and I meet these people who you'd think would be like, you know, specialists, like the, the person in charge of human rights at the foreign ministry. They were like fascists, like thinking I was like some kind of nut job coming in to talk about being tough on Russia. And like Poland and in Lithuania and Estonia were always saying the same thing I was saying. And they were always saying, oh, these countries have like, you know, post-traumatic stress from the Soviet era. You know, you, you've got some kind of issues, you know, some emotional issues. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sergei Magnitsky is dead, but like, calm down, dude. You know? <laughs> and now it's all too little too late, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. You talked about Abramovich as number two oligarch. What, is it, what does it say about us as human beings that we in Britain for nearly 20 years so casually ignored Abramovich's in, involvement in the Putin, 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 <laughs> Putin regime you know, and regarded him as inverted commas, great for English football? It always seems that we just ignored what was really going on there and where his money came from. All anyone cared about was how Chelsea was doing. Everybody was so narrow in their own interests. I mean, look, you know, the Russians set off a, a chemical weapon attack in Salisbury, a chemical weapon attack. And we were like rushing off to the World Cup in Russia a few months later. What's that? I mean, that's crazy. The whole thing was crazy and disgusting. And a lot of people are, should really be humiliated for the role they played in enabling Putin. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated discussion about human rights issues. And, you know, you, we can have the same conversation now about the next World Cup in Qatar. Should one make an argument that a whole event should be boycotted? Or do you say that actually participating gives you a platform to speak out against? That's bullshit. That's nonsense. There's no platform for anything. Anyone speaking out against anything in Qatar gets arrested. Qatar shouldn't have won it. So far as I'm aware, they won it through corruption of FIFA. Yeah, that was still in the last days of Set Blatter. I think that deal would have been done, presumably. We should just say no. There's some other stadiums built for some other World Cups in civilized countries. Let's just do them there. In Qatar, you know, good luck with your stadiums. Right, exactly. Let's talk about you. Having spent, as you say, the last decade plus seeking justice for Sergei and fighting for human rights and against corruption, not investing, have you perversely found greater purpose in your life? Oh, yeah. It's infinitely better fighting for justice than it is fighting for money. I would have never known that. I mean, it was pretty cool when you fought for money and made money. I mean, had a good investment that went up 10 times. I mean, that's pretty great. And I've seen this actually in in a lot of my peers who have been successful. They're all sort of scratching their heads saying, okay, now I've done this great thing money-wise. So what? Do I do more of that? What am I going to be thinking on my deathbed? What am I going to be thinking about? But in my case, as terrible as it's been with all these murders and attempted murders and all this stuff, you know, I get up in the morning feeling like I'm doing something meaningful and important and that has an effect on other people's lives. And I have to say that that is a good feeling um, to do something with purpose and mission. I mean, in a certain certain way, some of my business friends are kind of jealous of me for having a mission because what should their mission be? They don't have it. And and to be successful at a mission, you have to be pretty well driven. You can't just like do it part time. You can't just say, I'm going to allocate a little money to this and hope it all works out. To do what I've done requires uh, an obsession. And it's kind of hard to get that if you don't have a good reason for it. Yeah, I mean, I cannot help but admire your patience and resilience. Just reading the books, both Red Notice and Freezing Order, the perseverance it requires and the knocking on doors and the constant sort of setbacks and frustrations. I mean, and that alongside all the the emotional burden that you have to carry for running with this. I mean, you said actually that the way that the enemy, i.e. Putin and his goons, I think I'm quoting you, will get me is if I form patterns of behavior that they can exploit, I must never give them that. So what are, I mean, what are your patterns of behavior as far as you can reveal? What tactics do you employ to keep yourself safe? By not not having any patterns. I'm going to work every day at a different time, take a different route to the office, don't go to the same restaurant twice you know, just become really impossible to predict. Don't keep my information online about what I'm going to do, when I'm going to do it. Don't advertise where I'm going to go. Yeah, for sure. How do you manage your own mental well-being? Is it alienating facing such Russian enmity? I mean, do you have coping strategies for that? Or maybe you're so used to it now that it's second nature? Well, I've been doing this for 12 years, and so it doesn't wear me down. I mean, I would say that the main coping strategy is that I have a beautiful and wonderful family. My wife has been by my side and encouraging me to fight for justice and calming me when I have difficult times and reassuring me when there is something terrible happening. And to have a, a good wife or good partner and feeling like I'm not alone in this war and also having really good colleagues, the people who I work with. Some of them have been with me, Vadim and Ivan, who are in my book. They've been with me for more than 20 years. And we're doing this not for money. We're doing this because it's the right thing to do. And to have fellow travelers, it makes it all possible and doable. And I think that if I was just by myself, it would not be so easy. And I presume the war has given extra oxygen to the cause. Before, it was just a few brave souls, but now everybody is. The doors are swinging wide open. I feel like I need to clone myself 10 times to be able, because we can take advantage of this to get all the things done we're trying to get done. But I need more time hours in a day. 
Yeah, exactly. Time is the scarcity. There are going back to your sort of sense of fear or coping. I mean, there have been various incidents where you have feared for your life. In in 2005, you are arrested at Moscow Airport and hauled into a cell before then being deported back here to the UK. Finally, then in 2018 in Madrid, you're arrested on a Russian Interpol arrest warrant, despite being there to meet with Spain's top anti-corruption prosecutor. And that's you describe that scene in the opening of Freezing Order. Then there's the most extraordinary tale of all, which is in 2018, which is at the Trump-Putin press conference in Helsinki, where it becomes quite clear that you are Putin's public enemy number one. Tell us what happened. So the summit was taking place on a Monday. On the previous Friday, the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, who was investigating Russian interference in the U.S. presidential election, had indicted 12 Russian GRU officers, military intelligence officers. So they were indicted. And then the summit takes place the following Monday. Trump has a secret meeting with Putin. It's not a secret that he's having the meeting, but it's a secret what's happening in the meeting because nobody is allowed in. Not the Secretary of State, note takers, no nobody, just Putin, Trump, and one of Putin's translators. We don't know what happens in the meeting, but they go out to do the press conference afterwards. And the body language is really interesting. Trump was kind of head down, looking kind of forlorn, and Putin was strutting like a man with a mission. And they go out to their respective lecterns and the questions start and a Reuters journalist says to Putin, Mr. President, can you tell us uh, whether you're going to hand over those 12 GRU officers? And Putin smiles like he'd been preparing for this question all weekend. And he said, yes, you know, it's possible, but it would have to be reciprocal. For us to do this, we would want, for example, for Trump to hand over Bill Browder. And then the journalists go to Trump and say, you know, Mr. President, what do you think of this offer? And he says, I think it's an incredible offer. And I'm watching this. I'm, I'm actually in America at the time. I normally live in London. I'm in America at the time. And I'm thinking, did I just hear that, that Trump is going to hand me over? And I pictured a bunch of blacked out SUVs, like, you know, surrounding my place where I'm staying and taking me into custody and then putting me on a rendition flight back to Moscow, where I'd then be killed in a Russian prison. And, and it took Trump four days before he walked it back. And it was only when the Senate was about to vote 98 to zero, not to hand me over, that Trump decided that that wasn't what he was going to follow up and do. You know, I, I expect this kind of stuff from Putin. I mean, he's been chasing me for years and with Interpol and all sorts of other nonsense. But I was terrified that the most powerful man in the free world, president of the United States, was going along with it. And, and it felt like my world has just gotten a lot smaller. You know, I probably could have gotten out of America, but where would I go? I can't travel to most countries as it, as it is right now because of these Interpol warrants. I can only go to like 12 countries in the world. I can't go to most countries because I'm afraid I'll be handed over. And then all of a sudden, America is going along with that. I mean, I'd probably be able to stay in the UK and maybe go to Canada or something. I don't know, but it's terrifying. Yeah, so much of his presidency highlighted the sort of the potential fault lines and all the sort of principles and rules had become the norm for us in terms of the security of the legislature, of the rule of law. The art of the possible became something rather different. With all that in mind, I mean, what do you hope the impact of Freezing Order, indeed both your books, will be, continue to be? Well, my first book was incredibly impactful when it came to getting Magnitsky Acts passed. So many lawmakers in many different countries read my first book and came to me and said, we'd like to do a Magnitsky Act in Australia. We'd like to do a Magnitsky Act in Ireland. We'd like to do a Magnitsky Act in Canada. And so that was very, very powerful. And the second book is all about the Putin's money laundering and how he has infiltrated the West with all of his dirty money and corrupted all sorts of Western institutions. And so I think that, that my second book will hopefully go towards some important house cleaning when it comes to Russian money laundering, Russian enablers, and all the importers of Russian kleptocracy in the West. You know, Russia's major after oil, the next biggest export is corruption. And there are a bunch of people here in London and New York and other places that are gladly importing it. And we have to make sure their lives become very painful in the future. 
Absolutely. I can imagine that Red Notice was the ultimate pitch document, actually. Probably it made the argument very eloquently in your absence. So I can imagine that worked very much in your favor. You talked about the scarcity of time. Let me ask you, what can any of us do to support your cause and give it louder voice? Well, I think that we should be now outraged at any compromise with Putin. The worst possible scenario is that somehow this thing fizzles out and then we get back to business as usual. And we can't ever allow that to happen. And right now, everybody is in the right mental place. We're in the place where we're welcoming Ukrainian refugees in our homes. We're in a place where we're willing to pay higher gas prices if that's what it takes. But I can imagine that that's not going to always be the case. We can't allow our government to ever come to any kind of compromise with him, if he's even willing to do that. And so we have to all be outraged and stand firm against Vladimir Putin, no matter how this thing plays itself out. I think you're right. These causes can become temporarily fashionable. I mean, one can reflect that, you know, we didn't seem to care so much about taking in Syrian or Afghani refugees. There is perhaps a view in Europe that, you know, Ukrainian refugees look a bit more like us. So we sort of feel a bit closer to them and we're a bit more inclined to do something about it. Afghanistan and Syria perhaps feel a little little further away, not my business. I think that there's some truth to that. But, you know, even with people who look like us and are our direct neighbors, if this goes on for long enough, we may all want to just like, or the politics politicians may want to cut a deal and forgive Putin for his atrocities and his genocide, and we can't do that. How do government and indeed business, I mean, manage this endless fine balance in addressing global human rights issues? We touched on this in reference to Qatar and other prestigious sporting events, because if one decided to cease trade and seek justice in every territory which commits abuses, then uh, the world would malfunction to an even greater degree. So, I mean, is it a question of just simply picking the most egregious battles or how do we do it? I don't know. I don't do any business in China. I don't do any business in Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's possible not to. You know, if we said, okay, it's a, t- a condition for doing business, you don't do this. You want to do business with us? Then don't set up concentration camps, you know, in Xinjiang. Don't murder journalists by chopping them into pieces. If you don't do that, we'll happily do business. If you do, then we won't. It's easy to say we have to do business with all these people. No, we don't. You know, we can all make our choices about that. Maybe the answer is simpler than we give it credit for in the end. Final question before we come to the quick fire. What are you optimistic about? Well, I guess I'm optimistic about deep down, even some of the most cynical bureaucratic people are doing the right thing right now. Just today, the European Union took the lead completely and is banning the import of Russian oil and is banning the enablers, all these people I hate so much, these Western enablers from providing services to Russian companies. That's before the UK, before the US. And so the EU, which is like the most dysfunctional organization, and I voted to remain, but I hate the EU. There's like no person you can shame into like losing their job if they don't do what they should. But, you know, even the most terrible bureaucrat can sometimes do the right thing. And that that gives me some optimism. Shall we conclude with quick fire? Sure. Great. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? I think the kindest thing was putting forth the Magnitsky Act by Congressman Jim McGovern. It wasn't for me, it was for Sergey, but it was for me too. What's your most powerful memory? My most powerful memory is the morning of November 17th when I learned that Sergei Magnitsky had been murdered in Russian police custody. Yeah, you, I think you write about that in, I'm sure, in, in both of the books. That whole story in Red, Red Notice was very difficult to read, actually. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know to the degree you're willing to. <laughs> I did a Reddit Ask Me Anything and they had all sorts of questions about Putin and this and that. And then one question is, what kind of cheese do you like? And I said, <laughs> Comte. 
Okay, fine. I suppose most people don't know you like Comte, so fine. It's an unusual answer, but I, I like Comte very much too, so there we are. Which book, apart from your own, do you gift most regularly? I would say it's sort of more like 100 to 1 that I give my own book. It's actually great when you're an author, you don't have to bring wine to dinner parties, you just yeah. bring your book. So my last book, I pretty much had given it to everybody I'd ever had dinner with for like five years, and I was running out of new people, but now I've got a new book. So I've got another five years worth of dinner parties to go to. Otherwise, the book that I've been proselytizing about, which I think is so entertaining and shocking, sort of similar to my own book, is The Billion Dollar Whale. It's about the Joe Lowe story about this Malaysian con man who conned everybody into all these institutions like Goldman Sachs and so on into like doing all sorts of really terrible stuff. And it's just so interesting to watch how he has some like guy with chutzpah has been able to like, you know, run circles around these institutions. And he's now still on the run. He's not a hero in any way, but it's just so interesting to read his story and how he went about it. Yeah, there's something so addictive about getting the inside track on the stories and the machinations and tactics at play to commit these sorts of crimes. What's your desert island music? Believe it or not, I listen to country music. (laughs) Okay. And finally, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? Well, I don't have a lot of time and I try to spend whatever time I have with my children who are desperate for any time I can spend with them. And I wish I could spend more with them and I try as much as I can to spend with them. I got that sense from the book that so many holidays and leisure trips were cut short by interviews and uh, computer time and events getting ahead of you. So I I totally sympathize that family time (laughs) is top of the list. My wife even now schedules in things in my schedule because I'm, I'm pretty good at like following my schedule so she schedules in you know like read a story to this one and so on and so forth so. Uh, look i mean i think for even people less busy than you there's real value in compartmentalizing time so at least when you're devoted to family time unless something extraordinary happens that is what you are doing and nothing else will get in the way with that bill let me firstly say oh, what a thrill it's been to chat with you today your story and your life purpose have so much to admire about them and it's been fascinating to put a lens on the behaviors of corruption and deceit so thank you for sharing it with me also thoroughly and eloquently. And if this conversation gives the Magnitsky Act just a little more oxygen at a time when the world is in peril because of the same individual who provoked the act originally, then this has been a valuable use of our time. And of course, go and buy Bill's books, Red Notice and Freezing Order, to get the full gripping picture, if only it weren't all so true. So thank you, Bill, so much. Thank you. Great pleasure. Guys, I hope you find Bill's story as powerful, shocking and awe-inspiring as I do. And if you want more, you should buy his books. First one, Red Notice, and just published uh, in April, Freezing Order, which tell these amazing stories in full. Thank you to all of you, by the way, for leaving reviews and sharing these stories on Twitter and with friends. And if you like a load of BS, please continue to support me by leaving a review wherever you listen. And if you haven't done already, do subscribe to my Substack page where you'll find all my pods and articles. And that's at aloadofbs.substack.com. Next week, I'm talking to Professor Paul Dolan, Head of Behavioural Science at the LSE, all about happiness. Now, surely that's something we all want to find. Till next time, 